Chapter Eight of Skylark Three by E. E. Doc Smith. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Porpoise Men of Dasor. How long do you figure it's going to take us to get there, Mart? Seaton asked from a corner where he was bending over his apparatus table. About three days at this acceleration. I set it at what I thought the safe maximum for the girls. Should we increase it? Probably not. Three days isn't bad. Anyway, to save even one day, we'd have to more than double the acceleration, and none of us could do anything, so we'd better let it ride. How are you making it, Peg? I'm getting used to weighing a ton now. My knees buckled only once this morning from my forgetting to watch them when I tried to walk. Don't let me interfere, though. If I'm slowing us down, I'll go to bed and stay there. It hardly pays, said Seaton. We can use the time to good advantage. Look here, Mart. I've been looking over this stuff I got out of their ship, and here's something I know you'll eat up. They refer to it as a chart, but it's three-dimensional and almost incredible. I can't say that I understand it, but I get an awful kick out of looking at it. I've been studying it a couple of hours and haven't started yet. I haven't found our solar system, the green one, or their own. It's too heavy to move around now because of the acceleration we're using. Come on over here and give it a look. The chart was a strip of some parchment-like material or film, apparently miles in length, wound upon reels at each end of the machine. One section of the film was always under the viewing mechanism, an optical system, projecting an undistorted image into a visiplate somewhat similar to their own. And at the touch of a lever, a small atomic motor turned the reels and moved the film through the projector. It was not an ordinary star chart. It was three-dimensional, ultra-stereoscopic. The eye did not perceive a flat surface, but beheld an actual extremely narrow wedge of space as seen from the center of the galaxy. Each of the closer stars was seen in its true position in space and in its true perspective, and each was clearly identified by number. In the background were faint stars and nebulous masses of light too distant to be resolved into separate stars, a true representation of the actual sky. As both men stared fascinated into the visiplate, Seaton touched the lever, and they apparently traveled directly along the center line of that ever-widening wedge. As they proceeded, the nearer stars grew brighter and larger, soon becoming suns, with their planets and then the satellites of the planets plainly visible, and finally passing out of the picture behind the observers. The fainter stars became bright, grew into suns and solar systems, and were passed in turn. The chart unrolled, and the nebulous masses of light were approached, became composed of faint stars, which developed, as had the others, and were passed. Finally, when the picture filled the entire visiplate, they arrived at the outermost edge of the galaxy. No more stars were visible. They saw empty space stretching for inconceivably vast distances before them. But beyond that indescribable and incomprehensible vacuum, they saw faint lenticular bodies of light, which were also named, 
and which each man knew to be other galaxies, charted and named by the almost unlimited power of the Fenachrone astronomers, but not as yet explored. As the magic scroll unrolled still farther, they found themselves back in the center of the galaxy, starting outward in the wedge adjacent to the one which they had just traversed. Seaton cut off the motor and wiped his forehead. "'Wouldn't that break you off at the ankles, Mart? Did you ever conceive the possibility of such a thing?' "'It would, and I did not. There are literally miles and miles of film in each of those reels, and I see that there is a magazine full of reels in the cabinet. There must be an index or a master chart.' "'Yes, there's a book in this slot here,' said Seaton. "'But we don't know any of their names or numbers. "'Wait a minute. "'How did he report our Earth on that torpedo? "'Planet number three of Sun six-four-something, Pilarone? "'Wasn't it? "'I'll get the record.' Six-four-seven-three Pilarone, it was. "'Pilarone, let's see.' "'Seaton studied the index volume.' Real twenty, scene fifty-one. I'd translate it. They found the real, and scene fifty-one did indeed show that section of space in which our solar system is. Seaton stopped the chart when star six four seven three was at its closest range, and there was our sun, with its nine planets and their many satellites accurately shown and correctly described. They know their stuff, all right. You've got to hand it to them. I've been straightening out that brain record, cutting out the hazy stretches and getting his knowledge straightened out so we can use it. And there's a lot of this kind of stuff in the record you can get. Suppose that you can figure out exactly where he comes from with his dope and with his brain record? Certainly. I may be able to get more complete information upon the green system than the Osnomians have, which will be very useful indeed. You are right. I am intensely interested in this material, and if you do not care particularly about studying it any more at this time, I believe that I should begin to study it now. Hop to it. I am going to study that record some more. No human brain can take it all. I am afraid, especially all at once, but I am going to kind of peck around the edges and get me some dope that I want pretty badly. We got a lot of stuff from that wampus. About sixty hours out, Dorothy, who had been observing the planet through number six visiplate, called Seaton away from the fenachrome brain record, upon which he was still concentrating. "'Come here a minute, Dicky. Haven't you got that knowledge all packed away in your skull yet?' "'I'll say I haven't. That bird's brain would make a dozen of mine, and it was loaded until the scuppers were awash. I'm just nibbling around the edges yet.' I've always heard that the capacity of even the human brain is almost infinite. Isn't that true? asked Margaret. Maybe it is, if the knowledge were built up gradually over generations. I think maybe I can get most of this stuff into my peanut brain, so I can use it. But it's going to be an awful job. Is their brain really as far ahead of ours as I gathered from what I saw of it? asked Crane. It sure is, replied Seaton, as far as knowledge and intelligence are concerned, but they have nothing else in common with us. 
They don't belong to the genus Homo at all, really. Instead of having a common ancestor with the anthropoids, as they say we had, they evolved from a genus which combined the worst traits of the cat tribe and the carnivorous lizards, the most savage and bloodthirsty branches of the animal kingdom, and instead of getting better as they went along, they got worse, in that respect at least, but they sure do know something. When you get a month or so to spare, you want to put on this harness and grab his knowledge. Be very careful to steer clear of his mental traits and so on. Then, when we get back to the earth, we'll simply tear it apart and rebuild it. You'll know what I mean when you get this stuff transplanted into your own skull. But to cut out the lecture, what's on your mind, Dottie Dimple? This planet Martin picked out is all wet, literally. The visibility is fine, very few clouds, but this whole half of it is solid ocean. If there are any islands, even, they're mighty small. All four looked into the receiver. With the great magnification employed, the planet almost filled the visiplate. There were a few fleecy wisps of cloud, but the entire surface upon which they gazed was one sheet of the now familiar deep and glorious blue peculiar to the waters of that cuperous solar system, with no markings whatever. What did you make of it, Mart? That's water, all right. Copper sulfate solution, just like the Osnomian and Irvanian oceans, and nothing else visible. How big would an island have to be for us to see it from here? So much depends upon the contour and nature of the island, that it is hard to say. If it were low and heavily covered with their green-blue vegetation, we might not be able to see even a rather large one, whereas if it were hilly and bare, we could probably see one only a few miles in diameter. Well, one good thing anyway, we're approaching it from the central sun, almost in line with their own sun, so it's daylight all over it. As it turns and we get closer, we'll see what we can see, "'Better take turns watching it, hadn't we?' asked Seaton. "'It was decided, and while the Skylark was still some distance away, "'several small islands became visible, "'and the period of rotation of the planet "'was determined to be in the neighborhood of fifty hours. "'Margaret, then at the controls, "'picked out the largest island visible "'and directed the bar toward it. "'As they dropped down close to their objective, they found that the air was of the same composition as that of Osnome, but had a pressure of 78 centimeters of mercury, and that the surface gravity of the planet was 95 hundredths that of the Earth. Fine business, exalted Seaton. Just about like home. But I don't see much of any place to land without getting wet, do you? Those reflectors are probably solar generators, and they cover the whole island, except for that lagoon right under us. The island, perhaps ten miles long and half that in width, was entirely covered with great parabolic reflectors, arranged so closely together that little could be seen between them. Each reflector, apparently, focused upon an object in the center, a helix, which seemed to writhe luridly in that flaming focus glowing with nacreous, opalescent green light. "'Well, nothing much to see there. Let's go down,' remarked Seaton, 
as he shot the Skylark over the edge of the island and down to the surface of the water. But here again nothing was to be seen of the land itself. The wall was one vertical plate of seamless metal, supporting huge metal guides, between which floated metal pontoons. From each of these gigantic metal floats, metal girders and trusses went through slots in the wall into the darkness of the interior. Close scrutiny revealed that the large floats were rising steadily, although very slowly, while smaller floats bobbed up and down upon each passing wave. "'Solar generators, tide motors, and wave motors all at once,' ejaculated Seaton. "'Some power plant, folks. I'm going to take a look at that if I have to drill in with a ray.' They circumnavigated the island without revealing any door or other opening. The entire thirty miles was one stupendous battery of generators. Back at the starting point, the Skylark hopped over the structure and down to the surface of the small central lagoon previously noticed. Close to the water, it was seen that there was plenty of room for the vessel to move about beneath the roof of the reflectors, and that the island was one solid stand of tide motors. At one end of the lagoon was an open metal structure, the only building visible, and Seaton brought the space cruiser up to it and through the huge opening. For door, there was none. The interior of the room was lighted by long, tubular lights running around in front of the walls, which were veritable switchboards. Row after row, and tier upon tier stood the instruments, plainly electrical meters of enormous capacity and equally plainly in full operation. But no wiring or bus bar could be seen. Before each row of instruments, there was a narrow walk, with steps leading down into the water of the lagoon. Every part of the great room was plainly visible. Not a living being was even watching that vast instrument board. "'What do you make of it, Dick?' asked Crane slowly. "'No wiring, tight-beam transmission. The fenachrome do it, with two matched frequency-separable units. Millions and millions of kilowatts there, if I'm any judge.' Absolutely automatic, too, or else... Seaton's voice died away. Or else what? asked Dorothy. Just a hunch. I wouldn't wonder if... Hold it, Dickie. Remember, I had to put you to bed after that last hunch you had. Here it is anyway, Mart. What would be the logical line of evolution when the planet has become so old that all the land has been eroded to a level below that of the ocean. You picked us out an old one, all right, so old that there's no land left. Would a highly civilized people revert to fish? That seems like a backward move to me, but what other answer is possible? Probably not to true fishes, although they might easily develop some fish-like traits. I do not believe, however, that they would go back to gills or to cold blood. "'What are you two saying?' interrupted Margaret. "'Do you mean to say that you think fish live here instead of people, "'and that fish did all this?' "'As she waved her hand at the complicated machinery about them. "'Not fish exactly, no,' Crane paused in thought. "'Merely a people who have adjusted themselves to their environment "'through conscious or natural selection. 
We had a talk about this very thing in our first trip, shortly after I met you, remember? I commented on the fact that there must be life throughout the universe, much of it that we could not understand. And you replied that there would be no reason to suppose them awful because incomprehensible. That may be the case here. Well, I'm going to find out, declared Seaton, as he appeared with a box full of coils, tubes, and other apparatus. How? asked Dorothy curiously. Fix me up a detector, and follow up one of those beams. Find its frequency and direction. First, you know, then pick it up outside and follow it to where it is going. It'll go through anything, of course, but I can trap off enough of it to follow it, even if it's tight enough to choke itself, said Seaton. That's one thing I got from that brain record. He worked deftly and rapidly, and soon was rewarded by a flaring crimson color in his detector, when it was located in one certain position in front of one of the meters. Noting the bearing on the great circles, he then moved the Skylark along that exact line, over the reflectors, and out beyond the island, where he allowed the vessel to settle directly downwards. Now, folks, if I've done this just right, we'll get a red flash directly. As he spoke, the detector again burst into crimson light, and he set the bar into the line and applied a little power, keeping the light at its reddest, while the other three looked on in fascinated interest. That beam is on something that's moving, Mart. Can't take my eyes off it for a second, or I'll lose it entirely. See where we're going, will you? We're about to strike the water, replied Crane quietly. The water, exclaimed Margaret. Fair enough, why not? Oh, that's right. I forgot that the Skylark is as good a submarine as she is an airship. Crane pointed number six visiplate directly into the line of flight and started into the dark water. How deep are we, Mart? asked Seaton after a time. Only about a hundred feet and we do not seem to be getting any deeper. That's good. Afraid this beam might be going to a station on the other side of the planet, through the ground. If so, we'd have to go back and trace another. We can follow it any distance underwater, but not through rock. Need a light? Not unless we go deeper. For two hours, Satan held the detector upon that tight beam of energy, traveling at a hundred miles an hour, the highest speed he could use, and still hold the beam. I'd like to be up above watching us. I'll bet we're making the water boil behind us, remarked Dorothy. Yes, we're kicking up quite a wake, I guess. It sure takes power to drive this old can through this wetness. Slow down, commanded Crane. I see a submarine ahead. I thought it might be a whale at first, but it is a boat, and it is exactly what we're aiming for. You are constantly swinging with it. Keep it exactly in the line. Okay. Seaton reduced the power and swung the visiplate over in front of him, whereupon the detector lamp went out. It's a relief to follow something I can see, instead of trying to guess which way that beam's going to wiggle next. Lead on, Macduff. I'm right on your tail. The Skylark fell in behind the submersible craft, close enough to keep it plainly visible 
in the telescopic visiplate. Finally, the stranger stopped and rose to the surface between two rows of submerged pontoons, which, row upon row, extended in every direction as far as the telescope could reach. Well, Dot, we're where we're going, wherever that is. What do you suppose it is? It looks like a floating isle port, like what it told about in that wild story magazine you read so much. Maybe, but if so, they can't be fish, answered Seaton. Let's go. I want to look it over. And water flew in all directions as the Skylark burst out of the ocean and leaped into the air far above what was in truth a floating city. Rectangular in shape, it appeared to be about six miles long and four wide. It was roofed with solar generators, like those covering the island just visited, but the machines were not spaced quite so closely together, and there were numerous open lagoons. The water around the entire city was covered with wave motors. From their great height, the visitors could see an occasional submarine moving slowly under the city, and frequently small surface craft dashed across the lagoons. As they watched, a seaplane with short, thick wings, curved like those of a gull, rose from one of the lagoons and shot away over the water. "'Quite a place,' remarked Seaton, as he swung a visiplate upon one of the lagoons. Submarines, speedboats, and fast seaplanes. Fish or not, they're not so slow. I'm going to grab off one of those folks and see how much they know. Wonder if they're peaceable or warlike. They look peaceable, but you know the proverb, Crane cautioned his impetuous friend. Yes, and I'm going to be timid like a mice, Seaton returned, as the Skylark dropped rapidly toward a lagoon near the edge of the island. You ought to put that in a gag book, Dick, Dorothy chuckled. You forget about being timid until an hour afterwards. Watch me, Red Top, if they even point a finger at us. I'm going to run a million miles a minute. No hostile demonstration was made as they dropped lower and lower, however, and Seaton, with one hand upon the switch actuating the zone of force, slowly lowered the vessel down past the reflectors and to the surface of the water. Through the visiplate, he saw the crowd of people coming toward them, some swimming in the lagoon, some walking along narrow runways. They seemed to be of all sizes and unarmed. I believe they're perfectly peaceable. Just curious, Mart. I've already got the repellers on close range. Believe I'll cut them off altogether. How about the ray screens? All three full out. They don't interfere with anything solid, though, and won't hurt anything. They'll stop any ray attack, and this Arnak hull will stop anything else we're apt to get there. Watch this board, will you? And I'll see if I can't negotiate with them. Seaton opened the door. As he did so, a number of smaller beings dived headlong into the water, and a submarine rose quietly to the surface less than fifty feet away with a peculiar tubular weapon and a huge ray generator trained upon the Skylark. Seaton stood motionless, his right hand raised in the universal sign of peace, his left holding at his hip an automatic pistol charged with explosive shells. While Crane, at the controls, 
had the Fenachrone super-generator in line, and his hand lay upon the switch, whose closing would volatize the submarine and cut an incandescent path of destruction through the city lengthwise. After a moment of inaction, a hatch opened, a man stepped out upon the deck of the submarine, and the two tried to converse, but with no success. Seaton then brought out the mechanical educator, held it up for the other's inspection, and waved an invitation to come aboard. Instantly, the other dived and came to the surface immediately below Seaton, who assisted him into the Skylark. Tall and heavy as Seaton was, the stranger was half a head taller and almost twice as heavy. His thick skin was of the characteristic Osnomian green, and his eyes were the usual black, but he had no hair whatever. His shoulders, though broad and enormously strong, were very sloping, and his powerful arms were little more than half as long as would have been expected had they belonged to a human being of his size. The hands and feet were very large and very broad, and the fingers and toes were heavily webbed. His high-domed forehead appeared even higher because of the total lack of hair. Otherwise, his features were regular and well-proportioned. He carried himself easily and gracefully, and yet with the dignity of one accustomed to command as he stepped into the control room and saluted gravely the three other earth beings. He glanced quickly around the room and showed unmistakable pleasure as he saw the power plant of the cruiser of space. Languages were soon exchanged, and the stranger spoke in a bass voice vastly deeper than Seaton's own. In the name of our city and planet, I may say in the name of our solar system, for you are evidently from one other than our green system, I greet you. I would offer you refreshment, as is our custom, but I fear that your chemistry is but ill-adapted to our customary fare. If there be aught in which we can be of assistance to you, our resources are at your disposal. But before you leave us, I shall wish to ask from you a great gift. Sir, we thank you. We are in search of knowledge concerning forces which we cannot as yet control. From the power systems you employ, and from what I have learned of the composition of your suns and planets, I assume you have none of the metal of power, and it is a quantity of that element that is your greatest need. Yes, power is our only lack. We generate all we can with the materials and knowledge at our disposal, but we never have enough. Our development is hindered. Our birth rate must be held down to a minimum. Many new cities which we need cannot be built, and many new projects cannot be started, all for lack of power. For one gram of that metal I see plated upon that copper cylinder of whose very existence no scientist upon Dasur has had even an inkling. We would do anything. In fact, if all else failed, I would be tempted to attack you did I not know that our utmost power could not penetrate even your outer screen, and that you could volatize the entire planet if you so desired. Great cat! In his surprise, Seaton lasped from the formal language he had been employing. Have you figured us all out already, from a standing start? We know electricity, chemistry, physics, and mathematics fairly well, 
You see, our race is many millions of years older than is yours. You're the man I've been looking for, I guess, said Seaton. We have enough of this metal with us so that we can spare you some, as well as not. But before you get it, I'll introduce you. Folks, this is Sackner Carfon, chief of the council of the planet Dasor. They saw us all the time, and when we headed for this, the sixth city, he came over from the capital, or first city, in the flagship of his police fleet, to welcome us, or to fight us, as we pleased. Carfon, this is Martin Crane, or say, better than introductions, put on the headsets, everybody, and get acquainted right. Acquaintance made, and the apparatus put away, Seaton went to one of the storerooms, and brought out a lump of X, weighing about a hundred pounds. There's enough to build power plants from now on. It will save time if you were to dismiss your submarine. With you to pilot us, we can take you back to the first city a lot faster than your vessel can travel. Carfon took a miniature transmitter from a pouch under his arm and spoke briefly, then gave Seaton the course. In a few minutes, the first city was reached, and the Skylark descended rapidly to the surface of a lagoon at one end of the city. Short as had been the time consumed by their journey from the sixth city, they found a curious and excited crowd awaiting them. The central portion of the lagoon was almost covered by small surface craft, while the sides, separated from the sidewalks by the curbs, were full of swimmers. The peculiar Dasorian equivalent of whistles, bells, and gongs were making a deafening uproar, and the crowd was yelling and cheering in much the same fashion as do earthly crowds upon similar occasions. Seaton stopped the Skylark, took his wife by the shoulder, swinging her around in front of the visiplate. Look at that, Dot. Talk about rapid transit. They could give the New York subway a flying start and beat them hands down. Dorothy looked into the visiplate and gasped. Six metal pipes, one above the other, ran above and parallel to each sidewalk lane of water. The pipes were full of ocean water, water racing along at fully fifty miles an hour and discharging each stream a small waterfall into the lagoon. Each pipe was lighted in the interior and each was full of people, heads almost touching feet, unconcernedly being borne along, completely immersed in that mad current. As the passenger saw daylight and felt the stream begin to drop, he righted himself, apparently selecting an objective point, and rode the current down into the ocean. A few quick strokes, and he was either at the surface or upon one of the flights of stairs leading up to the platform. Many of the travelers did not even move as they left the orifice. If they happened to be on their backs, they entered the ocean backwards, and did not bother about riding themselves or about selecting a destination until they were many feet below the surface. Good heavens, Dick, they'll kill themselves or drown. Not these birds. Notice their skin. They've got a hide like a walrus, and a terrific layer of subcutaneous fat. Even their heads are protected that way. You could hardly hit one of them enough with a baseball bat to hurt him. 
As for drowning, they can outswim a fish and can stay underwater almost an hour without coming up for air. Even one of those youngsters can swim the full length of the city without taking a breath. How do you get that velocity of flow, Carfin? asked Crane. By means of pumps. These channels run all over the city, and the amount of water running in each tube and the number of tubes in use are regulated automatically by the amount of traffic. When any section of tube is empty of people, no water flows through it. This was necessary in order to save power. At each intersection, there are four standpipes and automatic swim counters that regulate the volume of water and the number of tubes in use. This is ordinarily a quiet pool, as it is in a residence section. And this channel, our channels correspond to your streets, you know, has only six tubes each way. If you will look on the other side of the channel, you will see the intake end of the tubes going downtown. Seaton swung the visiplate around, and they saw six rapidly moving stairways, each crowded with people, leading from the ocean level to the top of a tall metal tower. As the passengers reached the top of the flight, they were catapulted headfirst into the chamber, leading to the tube below. "'Well, that is some system for handling people,' exclaimed Seaton. "'What's the capacity of the system?' "'When running full pressure, six tubes will handle five thousand people a minute. It is only very rarely, on such occasions as this, that they are ever loaded to capacity. Some of the channels in the middle of the city have as many as twenty tubes, so that it is always possible to go from one end of the city to the other in less than ten minutes. "'Don't they ever jam?' asked Dorothy curiously. "'I've been lost more than once in the New York subway, and been in some perfectly frightful jams, too. And they weren't moving ten thousand people a minute, either.' No jams have ever occurred. The tubes are perfectly smooth and well-lighted, and all turns and intersections are rounded. The controlling machine allows only so many persons to enter any tube. If more should try to enter that can be carried comfortably, the surplus passengers are slid off down a chute to the swimways or sidewalks, and may either wait a while or swim to the next intersection." That looks like quite a jam down there now. Seaton pointed to the receiving pool, which was now one solid mass except for the space kept clear by the six mighty streams of humanity-laden water. If the newcomers can't find room to come to the surface, they'll swim over to some other pool. Carfin shrugged indifferently. My residence is the fifth cubicle on the right side of this channel. Our custom demands that you accept the hospitality of my home, if only for a moment, and only for a beaker of distilled water. An ordinary visitor could be received in my office, but you must enter my home. Seaton steered the Skylark, carefully surrounded as she was by a tightly packed crowd of swimmers, to the indicated dwelling and anchored her, so that one of the doors was close to a flight of steps leading from the corner of the building down into the water. Carfon stepped out, opened the door of his house, and preceded his guests within. The room was large and square, and built of synthetic, non-corroding metal, as was the entire city. 
The walls were tastefully decorated with striking geometrical designs in many-colored metal, and upon the floor was a softly woven rug. Three doors leading into other rooms could be seen, and strange pieces of furniture stood here and there. In the center of the floor space was a circular opening some four feet in diameter, and there, only a few inches below the level of the floor, was the surface of the ocean. Carfon introduced his guest to his wife, a feminine replica of himself, although she was not of quite such heroic proportions. "'I don't suppose that Seven is far away, is he?' Carfon asked of the woman. "'Probably he is outside, near the flying ball. If he has not been touching it ever since it came down, it is only because someone stronger than he pushed him aside. You know how boys are,' turning to Dorothy, with a smile as she spoke. Boy nature is probably universal. Pardon my curiosity, but why seven? asked Dorothy, as she returned the smile. He is the two thousandth, three hundred and forty-seventh, Sacnir Carfon, in the direct male line of descent, she explained. But perhaps six has not explained these things to you. Our population must not be allowed to increase. Therefore, each couple can have only two children. It is customary for the boy to be born first and is given the name of his father. The girl is younger and is given her mother's name. That will now be changed, said Carfon feelingly. These visitors have given us the secret of power, and we shall be able to build new cities and populate Dasor as she should be populated. Really? She checked herself but a flame leaped to her eyes, and her voice was none too steady as she addressed the visitors. For that, we Dasorians thank you more than words can express. Perhaps you strangers do not know what it means to want a dozen children with every fiber of your being, and to be allowed to have only two. We do, all too well. I will call seven. She pressed a button, and up out of the opening in the middle of the floor there shot a half-grown boy, swimming so rapidly that he scarcely touched the combing as he came to his feet. He glanced at the four visitors, then ran up to Seton and Crane. "'Please, sir, may I ride just a little short ride in your vessel before you go away?' This was said in their language. Seven boomed Carfin sternly and the exuberant youth subsided. "'Pardon me, sirs. I was so excited.' "'All right, son. No harm done at all. You bet you'll have a ride in the Skylark, if your parents will let you.' He turned to Carfon. "'I'm not so far beyond that stage myself that I'm not in sympathy with him. Neither are you, unless I'm badly mistaken.' "'I am very glad that you feel as you do. He would be delighted.' to accompany us down to the office, and it will be something to remember all the rest of his life. "'You have a little girl, too?' Dorothy asked the woman. "'Yes. Would you like to see her? She is asleep now.' And without waiting for an answer, the proud Dasorian mother led the way into a bedroom, a bedroom without beds, for Dasorians sleep floating in thermostatically controlled tanks, buoyed up in water, of the temperature they like best, in a fashion 
that no earthly springs and mattresses can approach. In a small tank in a corner reposed a baby, apparently about a year old, over whom Dorothy and Margaret made the usual feminine ceremony of delight and approbation. Back in the living room, after an animated conversation in which much information was exchanged concerning the two planets and their races of peoples, Carfon drew six metal goblets of distilled water and passed them around. Standing in a circle, the six touched goblets and drank. Then they embarked, and while Crane steered the Skylark slowly along the channel toward the offices of the Council, and while Dorothy and Margaret showed the eager seven all over the vessel, Seaton explained to Carfon the danger that threatened the universe, what he had done, and what he was attempting to do. Dr. Seaton, I wish to apologize to you, the Dosorian said when Seaton had done. Since you are evidently still land animals, I had supposed you of inferior intelligence. It is true that your younger civilization is deficient in certain respects, but you have shown a depth of vision, a sheer power of imagination, and grasp that no member of our older civilization could approach. I believe that you are right in your conclusions. We have no such rays nor forces upon this planet, and never have had, but the sixth planet of our own sun has. Less than fifty of your years ago, when I was but a small boy, such a projection visited my father. It offered to rescue us from our watery planet, and to show us how to build rocket ships to move us to three, which is half land, inhabited by lower animals. And he didn't accept? Certainly not. Then as now, our sole lack was power, and the strangers did not show us how to increase our supply. Perhaps they had more power than we, perhaps, because of the difficulty of communication, our want was not made clear to them. But of course, we did not want to move to three, and we had already had rocket ships for hundreds of generations. We have never been able to reach six with them, but we visited three long ago, and everyone who went there came back as soon as he could. We detest land. It is hard, barren, unfriendly. We have everything here on Dasor. Food is plentiful, synthetic or natural, as we prefer. Our watery planet supplies our every need and wish, with one exception. And now that we are assured of power, even that one exception vanishes, and Dasor becomes a very paradise. We can now lead our natural lives, work and play to our fullest capacity. We would not trade our world for all the rest of the universe. I never thought of it in that way, but you're right at that, Seaton conceded. You are ideally suited to your environment. But how do I get to planet six? Its distance is terrific, even as cosmic distances go. You won't have any night until Dasar swings outside the orbit of your sun, and until then, six will be invisible, even to our most powerful telescope. I do not know myself, answered Carfon, but I will send out a call for the chief astronomer. He will meet us and give you a chart and the exact course. At the office, the earthly visitors were welcomed formally by the council, the nine men in control of the entire planet. 
The ceremony over, and their course carefully plotted, Carfon stood at the door of the Skylark a moment before it closed. We thank you with all force, Earthmen, for what you have done for us this day. Please remember and believe that this is no idle word. If we can assist you in any way in this conflict which is to come, the resources of this planet are at your disposal. We join Osnome and the other planets of this system in declaring you, Dr. Seaton, our overlord. End of chapter 8